0: As we enter, you know, any semblance of a financial downturn, you'll see there are less companies potentially buying for that same top talent. And if you feel like you're on very stable footing, that might allow you to get an edge in acquiring some of that talent.
1: Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The CIBC Innovation Banking podcast explores the world of startups, growth stage companies and late stage companies that have made a big splash in their industries around the world. COVID's impact on these companies continues and the geopolitical issues that have triggered a correction in the public markets has had an impact on the private equity markets, too. Nobody knows this quite like Ron Ding. He co-leads B2B growth equity investments at NorWest, where he focuses on partnering with founder-managed or capital-efficient businesses, looking to scale from double-digit revenues to triple-digit revenues. Norwest is a multi-stage investment firm that has delivered top quartile returns over the past 60 years and has seen its fair share of economic cycles. The man with a B.S. in electrical and computer engineering at Cornell cut his teeth more than a decade ago at Union Square Advisors during the last financial crisis. So what of the twin crises we find ourselves in today? He tells me we're starting to see a revision to pre-COVID life, but one that's accelerated.
0: Yeah, I would say overall, we are able to kind of have faster deal velocity around our transactions, mostly because I think companies are a lot more open, building relationships, and potentially even sharing information virtually. Whereas in the past, there was um, a lot more emphasis and requirement around needing to meet in person.
1: Tell me about that deal velocity. I can imagine that's a bit of a double-edged sword.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm sure you've spoken with other investors over the course of the last two years. Everybody has had a pretty busy slash crazy last two years, just given the large uh, influx of deal volume. And I think a lot of that was predicated on the fact that companies, uh, because they're more open to sharing information and exploring transactions, it has just led to a lot more transaction opportunities.
1: So it's it's just a function that you're busier, you're not worried about things slipping through the cracks, or maybe the due diligence isn't as robust as you would like if you had the time and patience to do it face-to-face?
0: There's always an element of face-to-face that is lost if you're just conducting diligence virtually for the entirety of the um, investment process. And so what we typically have tried to do is um, once we get to a certain point where we feel pretty comfortable with making the investment, we try and spend some time with management in person as much as possible. Um, and that can be one time or multiple times. And through COVID, we tried to be very flexible around this. So whether it was flying somewhere to, to meet someone, inviting them to you know come and meet us, uh, or meeting somewhere in the middle, uh, we certainly did endeavor to meet every one of the entrepreneurs that we ultimately invested in.
1: So has COVID made your business more efficient?
0: In some ways, yes, uh, because it allows for uh, greater reach and it allows, in most scenarios, I think entrepreneurs have been a lot more receptive to uh, having at least initial dialogue virtually. Whereas before, you know, a lot of these dialogues needed to be happen, happening in person or at conferences and things like that. Uh, so from that perspective, it allowed for us to probably make contact or develop relationships with, with a lot more entrepreneurs.
1: What have you learned through COVID that surprised you the most?
0: Mm, that's a good question. I would say across our companies, uh, one of the amazing things that we saw was just how resilient a lot of these businesses were. Certainly, uh, many of our companies grew up during a, a boom time, You know, one of the greatest bull markets of, our, uh, of history over the last 10 years, and to have some sort of market disruption you know, that, that can be a very scary time for a lot of people. But we, what we saw was a lot of our companies rallied, and it wasn't just the leadership team that rallied, but uh, the employee bases rallied and the customer bases rallied around um, our businesses as well, especially the ones that were a little bit more focused on delivering on specific missions and, you know, helping to find ways to continue to positively impact our key stakeholders.
1: Yeah, there seems to be uh, more of a, a, an ability or a desire within the employee base to, to move around, and, and the job has really taken on a greater meaning as a core part of their identity.
0: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, look, I don't think that necessarily applies to everybody, but but within a lot of our companies, what we see is folks who are certainly interested in having a good career financially and having good career development opportunities, but at the same time, they want to work with a company that embodies a set of mission and, and values that, are, that resonate with them and that they can get behind. And I think part of this is because today you, you have your job or your place of employment as more of a core part of your identity. And so because of that, you, you want to make sure that you're working with a company um, with values that you believe in
1: so you're finding that partnering with businesses that are more mission driven that they've been able to compound the benefits for their business on both the financials as well as the impact
0: i think so and you know i think it comes down to a couple of different uh, aspects right so the first one is just because the company has has a greater uh, definition around their mission and their values it's able to galvanize the team internally in terms of where should we focus how should we develop the product, how should we help our customers? What are the things that we actually want to accomplish? I think that piece, just having alignment around the mission and the values is very, very important. But the second piece is, as you talk about, is around talent. The best talent today have a lot more choices available to them given the age of remote work than they may have had prior to COVID. As they go out and explore all the potential opportunities, they're going to naturally gravitate towards companies that are a little bit more mission-driven and have missions that resonate with them.
1: So thanks to COVID, the timeline to build a relationship has accelerated as companies become more comfortable building those relationships over video conferencing. And while it's led to a more fluid data exchange, it's also led to a galvanization of partners, customers and employees. They want to be more mission driven. Employees are more open during the Great Resignation to move around and make their job a greater part of their identity. All of this triggered by the worst pandemic in 100 years. But what about the financial crisis that followed? We've witnessed a great reset in valuations in the public markets trickle down to the private markets. Ding tells me that's made his industry more competitive amid a flood of capital into his investment class
0: we've seen obviously a pretty tremendous reset in public market valuations and some of that has trickled into the private markets i would say in any market whether it's a bull market or bear market you know the top businesses are going to get premium valuations you know for a lot of the companies that we are working with we're not seeing a dramatic pullback in valuation um ultimately the companies that we're investing in are oftentimes founder owned or lightly capitalized and able to operate profitably. So they have a lot of negotiating leverage in terms of whether they want to go and take on capital now or take on capital at some point in the future. I think because of that choice, it's led to less of a pullback in the private markets, at least in our segments of the private markets, versus other markets where you know, liquidity, number one, is more abundant, but maybe more of a requirement for continued growth.
1: Well, tell me more about that trickle down impact of the great reset from the public markets into the private markets. How has that reset in valuations affected the deferring of capital transactions?
0: I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and companies look at the public markets as a potential reference point for how they might think about their businesses being valued. Um, and in the absence of conducting some sort of market auction, It's hard for for people to validate whether that's true or not. And so um, I think people will naturally gravitate towards maybe deferring, uh, taking on additional capital or taking on a partner because they see that pullback in public valuations and think that that might translate to a pullback in private valuations.
1: So then what kind of impact does that have on a growth company?
0: For a lot of the growth companies that we invest in, as I mentioned, they're able to and they have historically operated profitably. And so these are companies that don't necessarily need capital in order to continue to grow. And my guess is what goes through the founder's mindset or the entrepreneur's mindset as they think about taking on capital at this time or not taking on capital at this time because of the market pullback is look, our businesses continue to grow well. Why would we try and explore taking on capital at a depressed valuation when we can maybe grow into a higher valuation in the future? And certainly, we see that play out in a lot of different companies that we speak with, a lot of management teams kind of go through this decisioning process. What we've encouraged people to think about is look, um, Norwest is a firm we've been around for 60 years, and we've seen lots of bull markets and we've seen lots of bear markets. And when the markets go in the opposite direction, that you wanted to, there's an opportunity to play defense, sure, but there's also a great opportunity to play offense. And in order for you to capitalize on opportunities where maybe your competitors or other companies are not being as aggressive, that's where having a partner on board could be really, really valuable.
1: Tell me more about that playing offense. You're talking to a Canadian here, so let's extend that into a hockey metaphor. You know, Wayne Gretzky was always famous for saying that he didn't skate to where the puck was, you skated to where the puck was going.
0: So the way I think about it is if you have a really strong company and you feel like the business is stable and sustainable, whether in bull markets or, or, or bear markets, then in a bear market, it might be a good time for you to explore putting your foot on the, on the pedal even harder. And that comes in the form of maybe being more aggressive with uh, acquisitions. You know, all of a sudden, there are a lot more companies that might have depressed valuation expectations or different financial situations where you can take advantage of that. You should also potentially be more aggressive with acquiring talent. You know, if you look back maybe 12, 24 months ago the talent market was absolutely crazy and in order for you to compete with the best talent you are not only competing with your peers but you're competing with much larger much better capitalized companies now as we enter you know any semblance of a financial downturn you'll see there are less companies potentially buying for that same top talent and if you feel like you're on very stable footing That might allow you to get an edge in acquiring some of that talent. And, you know, on the acquisition front, on the talent front, investing into go-to-market and a number of different areas, we have a ton of resources here in-house where we're helping companies accomplish this in a more effective or frictionless way. And so that, again, underscores the value of bringing on a partner, even during a time where, you know, supposedly valuations are going to be compressed.
1: So tell me more then about what it is that you bring to the table in a bear market.
0: Yeah, so as I mentioned, Norwest has been around for a very long time. So we've seen a lot of these market cycles. We feel like we have a good handle on how to navigate them. Now, every market cycle is gonna look a little bit different, but what we've tried to do through the last couple of years, even during this turmoil, is be in constant communication with all of our companies on number one, how to be prepared in case something happens that you don't expect right? Uh, Whether that is uh, maneuvering operationally or changing the strategy in some way. But then also number two, as I said, figuring out how to selectively play offense, right? Uh, Do things in a very disciplined way where maybe your peers or your competitors are unable to do because they don't have the financial wherewithal or the partners to go and do it. And for us to go and capitalize on those opportunities so that, you know, when the market cycle turns again, we will be in an even better position than we were today.
1: It's, I'm really fascinated by so many growth companies that have come to recognize that the CEO is wearing multiple hats and now is really the time to start taking off some of those hats and give them to people who can be dedicated to particular tasks within the acceleration phase of a company.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the companies that we work with, you know, um, especially as they're slightly less mature, you have CEOs, founders, other executive members that are doing everything. And as the business continues to grow, uh, what we found is that is not a you know scalable or sustainable way of growing. And even though you can probably maintain that level of growth and success for a period of time. What we see with a lot of companies in the past is if you don't diversify your responsibilities, then you run into a wall at some point, and that creates a lot more operational risk for the business at some point in the future. And so we do uh, work and collaborate and and try and um, convince our CEOs, our very capable and competent CEOs, to maybe delegate a little bit of that work and, and find different ways to allow them and the company to scale better.
1: What do you do when you come across a CEO who's reluctant to take off a hat? How do you sell them on relinquishing an element of control?
0: I think that... First and foremost comes down to having a foundation of trust. And so we spend a lot of time building relationships with people before we even make an investment, in some cases for many years before we make an investment, just to make sure that we understand each other culturally, interpersonally, you know, and are aligned in terms of our operating philosophy As it relates to specific business decisions, our general philosophy on this is we want to back the existing team. Uh, We take what we call an invited guest approach when we invest into businesses. And so we are going to be working with you actively, but we we think of ourselves as the guest in your home. So we're not going to be changing the paintings on the wall unless you you tell us that that's okay. Um, What we will do, though, is we bring a lot of experience from working with hundreds of companies over Decades and relaying some of that experience to our specific companies. And your specific uh, question around, you know, how do we talk about maybe diversifying the management team a little bit? I think it comes down to sharing those prior experiences. Look, other companies that were at your stage, as they continue to grow, you know, they took one of two paths. One path was they looked to add to their management team and scale and delegate responsibility. And this is how that ended up. And the other path was people decided to go it alone, and we supported them on that. But these were the issues and risks that turned up as the company continued to scale. And we ultimately allow our leadership teams to try and make their own decisions. But we hope that by sharing this data and these stories and these experiences and sharing, frankly, the experiences of folks in our network who have lived it firsthand, that our leadership teams will ultimately make the right decisions.
1: So while companies may be deferring capital transactions, they're not deferring growth. Ding's belief that to accelerate a company from a startup to a growth stage requires a founder to be willing to turn over the reins in certain parts of the business to a dedicated executive like finance or marketing is critical. And that companies like Norwest have experience helping guide those growth companies into their next phase. So I asked him how much of this experience came from his time as a scrappy young guy at Union Square Advisors.
0: Uh, Unions for Advisors was, uh, you know, I worked there uh, about 10 years ago. And at the time, it was a fairly small investment bank. And, you know, I joined when the team was relatively small. And I think because of that, I had an opportunity to really take on maybe an outsized responsibility relative to my title and my role. In some ways, I had a bit of empathy around what it was like working at a smaller business, helping to grow. And I hope that I take some of that empathy into a lot of my conversations with CEOs and executives around their growth problems. Certainly the Scale and scope is going to be different, but the, the, the feeling and, you know, the attempts to navigate, you know, different risks and scenarios, uh, hopefully uh, we can find some shared commonality around that. Of course, beyond that, Union Score Advisors was focused on technology, MA and transactions, and we were able to apply some of that industry knowledge to some of the areas that we invest in today.
1: Having a sense of empathy towards the people with whom you work is really sort of a critical superpower when it comes to being able to do what you do today.
0: Uh, I would say so. I Look, I think ultimately the, the role of the management team and the entrepreneur, it is an incredibly tough job. And we also understand that it can be an incredibly lonely job. And the last thing that A CEO or a management team wants is for somebody to come in and be overbearing and tell them that they're wrong and this is what you should do. And so we certainly try and lead every conversation with a strong attempt to understand what it is that they're doing, what they're going through, both positives and negatives, and just make sure that we can be there as really a true partner, right? I think of myself as in the best scenarios, working with companies I can be sort of a partial co-founder, right? I'm living the same problems as the management team. And I'm there, you know, with no other agenda other than to try and help them solve those problems.
1: What about your background in electrical and computer engineering at Cornell? Does it help inform your relationships with companies today?
0: Well, I wish I uh, could say it, it helps inform my uh, industry knowledge and uh, understanding of technology more, but the fact of the matter was I probably was not a, a great electrical and computer engineering student, and that was partly why I decided to transition from a career in engineering more towards a career in finance. But look, um, you know, my background was uh, both of my parents were engineers, so that was all I knew growing up. I always had an interest in both technology as well as in this concept of helping things grow or helping build things. And so ultimately, I felt like moving into investing where we were continuing to help technology companies and importantly, helping them grow would be something that, you know, I would really enjoy.
1: Yeah, I can imagine there's sort of a a relationship between uh, engineering and what, what you do today insofar as you're both building something.
0: Yeah, that's right. But the um, components of it are different. The sequencing of it is different. Um, but ultimately, that, that's why I do feel fortunate in working you know, in a, a sector and an area of investment, growth equity, that is more specifically focused on growth. Because as you know, there are a lot of different ways to invest and there are a lot of different ways to uh, be successful financially. But I feel like I found an area where Um, Certainly as an asset class and as a group, we've been successful, but beyond that, the act of helping these companies grow has really resonated with more of my personal mission and my personal values.
1: So when you told your engineering parents you weren't doing engineering, how'd that go over?
0: Yeah, they're used to you know individuals staying at the same company for 30 years and uh, never changing jobs or changing careers, so it was definitely a bit of a shock, but... I think over the years, they've learned to maybe trust my judgment a little bit more.
1: Ron, thank you so much for your time and insight today. Thank you. There's no doubt Ding's parents are not disappointed he moved from engineering into where he is today. Ron Ding has helped make Norwest the success it is today as the world shifts to B2B software, data and business services, thanks to COVID-19 and a shift to a work from home environment. It's just another reminder to company founders about the importance of knowing what you're good at and knowing when to turn to someone outside your area of expertise. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening.